Welcome to Seeing Beyond Risk, a podcast series from the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. I'm Chris Vivoli, Staff Actuary, Communications and Public Affairs at the CIA. Today, we will be continuing our discussion of a series of practice resource documents developed by the Committee on Enterprise Risk Management. To talk about the paper entitled Actuarial Aspects of Enterprise Risk Management, we are joined by committee member Claude Desilet. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Chris. So we've all heard the term enterprise risk management, and maybe we have differing interpretations of what it means. So how would you explain ERM to somebody who is seeing this term for the very first time? Well, there are indeed numerous definitions of enterprise risk management, or ERM. But let me start with the letter E of ERM. The word enterprise indicates that this is a process which applies to an entire organization using a holistic view of risk. While as actuaries, we often think of enterprise being applied to an insurance company or a group of insurance companies, ERM can be applied to any organization, including, of course, pension plans, but also any other organization, including a manufacturing plan, for example. Now, for the R of ERM, because of its holistic nature, it deals with a comprehensive list of risk types, including those that are not quantifiable or difficult to quantify. Risk types that leave themselves to be better quantified would include insurance risk and investment risk, for example. On the other hand, more difficult risks to quantify would include operational risk and reputational risk. Finally, the M of ERM means that risks have not only to be measured, but also managed. While the first thing that comes to mind is usually the downside, including the risk of bankruptcy, ERM must look at both the upside and the downside to achieve an appropriate balanced risk reward. Because the organization is constantly evolving and the environment constantly changing, risk management must be a continuous process where risks are reassessed at regular intervals and new emerging risks are added to the equation. Now, the practice resource document talks about the components of risk governance, but it also mentions the concept of risk culture. What are some of the indicators of a functioning risk culture and what can organizations do to get there? So, Chris, before I answer your question, let me say that developing and maintaining a good risk culture is important because while risk management team is the second line of defense, the business unit themselves are the first line of defense and having primary responsibilities to manage the risk. So that being said, to your first question about indicators of a functioning risk culture, here are some examples. Do employee surveys include questions about risk management and what are the results? How are risk elements taken into account in the financial planning process? For an insurance company, is a key component of product development and pricing decision the risk? For a defined benefit pension plan, does the investment policy include risk mitigation elements such as ALM or edging? Is risk properly considered in the design of the plan, the funding policy, etc.? Or risk concern and potential losses being escalated on a timely basis? Often, for what kind of risk? After an adverse event, is the postmortem revealing some weaknesses in the risk management process? Then, to your second question as to how to get there, you won't be surprised if I say that risk culture has to start with tone at the top, starting with the board and senior management and in particular the CEO, as they will determine how much weight is given to views on risk. Not surprisingly either, effective two-way communication and awareness across the entire organization will be essential in building a strong risk culture. In addition to written and verbal communications, podcasts and e-learning tools, such as quizzes, would be effective ways of educating and training the employees. Setting up an independent escalation process, like a hotline, in addition to the hierarchy channel, could also be useful to get the maximum input from the business. 
Then rewarding risk mitigation initiative, not only growth or profit, is also a very effective way of promoting a good risk culture. So while these are just examples, this gives you some ideas of some of the basic steps that could be taken towards building a strong risk culture. Can you provide an overview of some of the important risk measures and metrics that an organization should be monitoring? Of course, there are a number of risk measures, so I would only mention a few, starting with the one that I won't have to explain, the standard deviation. It has the advantage of being easy to calculate and is commonly understood by most informed audiences. Its main drawback is that it does not explain the entire distribution. Distribution can have the same standard deviation, but dramatic differences in other aspects, which could lead to a significantly different view of the risk profile. Information on the skewness, for example, might be needed to understand the tail of the distribution, which is usually the area that actuaries and risk managers are most concerned with. Then value at risk, or VAR, is also a well-known risk measure. It could be defined as the smallest loss that is greater than the predetermined percentile of the distribution over a predetermined period of time. For example, you could have a 99% probability of not having a loss over $1 million over a one-year period. Its main limitation, though, is that it provides information at only one point of the distribution and does not provide information in the area of the distribution above the specified confidence level, that is, the tail area. The last one I would mention is the conditional tail expectation, CTE, also referred as tail value at risk, or TVAR. It is the mean of the distribution above a certain percentile, or in other words, the expected value of a loss given that the loss is above a specified threshold. Its main drawback is that it is more difficult to calculate compared to the standard deviation and the VAR measures. So if you were to take the example of an earthquake risk, the standard deviation would provide you information about the volatility of such event. The VAR would tell you how large the earthquake would have to be to exceed the confidence interval. And the TVAR would tell you how large in average the earthquake would be if it exceeded the confidence interval. Okay, let's talk a bit about risk models. Uh, what are the different types of risk models that can be adopted? And how does an organization decide what level of sophistication is best for them? So Chris, these are two good questions indeed. Since there is a large variety of models depending on the various risk types, I will talk about types of model rather than the models themselves. So first, they are what could be referred to as simple factor models. These are the simplest form of models that can be used to measure risk. A prescribed factor is multiplied by a known base amount to estimate the amount of risk. As example, factor-based models are often used by rating agencies and regulators, like the OSFIS MCT, for example. Another type would be stress tests, which could be either standard, when the same test is being applied to all of the entities, or could be your own, which would be specific to your organization. So examples of standard tests would be those mandated by OSFI, what example of own tests would be those used in the ORSA process? Then you have partial versus full models. If I start with the full internal models, these are the most comprehensive and most complex ways to measure an overall risk. To develop such model, one method is to use a multivariate probability distribution function to measure all risks simultaneously. Another method is to model each risk separately and then aggregate the result using copulas as an aggregation approach. Then in between, you have partial models, where some risks are analyzed together, while some others are estimated using a single factor model. Now, as to what model to choose, that will depend on a multitude of factors, which could include the size and complexity of the organization, type of risk, the amount and quality of data available, the economic and political environment, etc. 
So in other words, Chris, there isn't a one-size-fits-all. Yeah, so when it comes to stress testing and scenario testing, well, how should an organization narrow down its options and decide what tests are really the most relevant? Well, there are many options available in terms of stress tests. On one end, you have those that are driven by elements internal to the organization versus those that would be external, like economic or political factors. Those that are more specific to the individual organization are more likely to have ripple effects putting at risk customer retention, while those that are more widespread might have different kind of ripple effects, like impacts on supply and demand. Even the regulators are more likely to be more lenient towards breach of capital limits on industry-wide situation versus when it's limited to a single or a few organizations. As an example, a system failure caused by a widespread weather event impacting a large part of the industry is not likely to impact customer retention, and new business sales are likely to be just delayed as opposed to be lost. On the other hand, a system failure caused by a hardware breakdown or a software issue specific to an organization is likely to impact customer retention, new business sales, as well as potentially having repetitional impacts. Now, in terms of what tests are more relevant, senior management would definitely bring valuable inputs, especially for internal risk. For an industry expert, an economist might be more helpful for risk caused by external factors. A well-diversified board would also provide good input for both internal and external factors. In all cases, while keeping in mind emerging risk, a review of historical adverse events will provide you with a good starting point to design appropriate and realistic scenarios. Finally, if I mention reverse stress testing, this is where you start with a given adverse financial impact and solve back to the recurrent side of the shock required to produce such an impact. This would help in narrowing the choices of stress tests to analyze and to review. Now, you touched on this a bit earlier, but I'd like to talk more about the term ORSA. Uh, what does that mean, and how does that differ from regulatory requirements such as FCT? So, to start with, you know, ORSA stands for Own Risk Insolvency Assessment, and is increasingly becoming an international requirement for insurers in many countries, including Canada. It encompasses all key elements of risk, both current and future, based on the self-assessment of the insurer, and it is the responsibility of the board and senior management. It is usually prepared by the CRO. Then you mention FCT. It stands for Financial Condition Testing and start with a base scenario, typically the company's business plan, and then a series of plausible adverse scenarios. Unlike ORSA, the FCT is prepared and signed by the appointed actuary. Perhaps some of the most important elements of both ORSA and FCT are the recombination and proposed management action should the stress situation materializes. This is important to ensure that the board and senior management are aware of these and are prepared to implement them as needed. So ERM is much more than the process of generating reports. It is a process which starts with tone at the top, aligned with the risk appetite of the enterprise and managed by the entire organization. And for more details on risk appetite, I strongly encourage you to listen to the podcast on risk appetite by Megan Orr. It is episode 112 on the CIA website. Great. Well, it sounds like there's lots of really good information. It's a good introduction to ERM. So thanks once again for coming to talk to us today about that. Well, thank you, Chris. We now have over 100 episodes in our podcast series going back over the past three years. So we certainly encourage you to subscribe. You can do so through whatever platform you use to get your podcast content. Of course, if you like today's episode, we'd like you to leave us a five-star rating or a comment. And we always want to hear from you. So please send any suggestions or episode ideas to podcasts at cia-ica.ca. 
In addition, we're always looking for content to go on our Seeing Beyond Risk blog. So if you have some ideas you'd like to share, please contact us at seeingbeyondrisk at cia-ica.ca. Until next time, I'm Chris Fiboli, and thank you for tuning in to Seeing Beyond Risk.